0: begin our episode with a look backwards. On September 24, 1766, in colonial era Boston, customs officials searched merchant David Malcolm's home, which was also his place of business. They claimed the authority to do so by a writ of assistance issued to the customs official based on information of a confidential informant. Malcolm allowed them to search, but denied them access to a locked cellar, arguing that they did not have the legal authority to break it open. The officials left and returned with a specific search warrant, only to find that Malcolm had locked his house. A crowd supportive of Malcolm had gathered around the house. No violence occurred, but reports written by officials created the impression back in Britain that a riot had occurred. The incident of Daniel Malcolm furthered Boston's reputation in Britain as a lawless town controlled by mobs, a reputation that would contribute to the government's decision to send troops in 1768. This is one of the several incidents when a Boston merchant resisted a search with a seemingly exact knowledge of the law. John Hancock would act in a similar manner when custom officials attempted to search his ship, Lydia, in 1768. Daniel Malcolm and John Hancock established a precedent that the American people made sure to enshrine in our Bill of Rights. The right of private citizens against an unreasonable search and seizure by a government actor. Today's episode, the fourth installment of the Stockdale Center's Bill of Rights series, is titled Search, Seizure, and Admissibility. We dive headfirst into the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Fourth Amendment. I'm your host and narrator, Michael Sears, and I'm joined by an excellent panel consisting of legal scholars, historians, and jags. In today's fourth episode, we ask the questions, what does the right to privacy mean? And what rights do we have as American citizens to protection from an unreasonable search and seizure? What is the difference between reasonable and unreasonable? What rights do government actors have, both with and without a warrant? Moreover, how are we to understand what is admissible and what isn't in a court of law? More specifically, near the end of this episode, we break down how the Fourth Amendment intersects with our Uniform Code of Military Justice. Do you know the difference between a search and an inspection? Do you know the difference between what a military court can and cannot use as evidence? These things matter. You need to know. They apply to us here, not just at the Naval Academy, but to you as future junior officers and to us all as citizens. We're delighted to have you join us and we want to make sure you understand the Fourth Amendment. We begin with the right to privacy. We are joined by Professor Jeff Kossif and Professor Mitt Regan to help us understand where the right to privacy
1: comes from and what it means to you as a citizen. My name is Jeff Kossif, and I teach cybersecurity law for cyber operations majors at the Naval Academy. Uh, Well, the United States does not have an explicit right to privacy in the Constitution. We have a number of provisions in the Constitution that uh, have been interpreted as privacy protective. Uh, We have the Fourth Amendment for uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. We have the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is the source of the ruling in uh, Roe versus Wade regarding um, abortion restrictions, which comes down to a right to privacy. Uh, we have, I mean, e- even the Third Amendment about quartering soldiers, um, has the Supreme Court in just sort of not, not interpreting the Third Amendment, but in passing has said even that is... Reflects a value of privacy, but what we don't have in the United States is an explicit statement in the Constitution saying there is a right to privacy. Uh, now you compare that with the First Amendment: uh, Congress shall make no law <laughs> that that is, that is a really strong statement, and uh, the the courts have interpreted that, and there have been a lot of exceptions and so forth. But um, for free speech, we're starting with a very strong explicit statement. Constitution in favor of free speech. And for privacy, we're really having to extrapolate things more from various portions of the Constitution.
2: This is Mitt Regan. I'm a professor at Georgetown Law Center. I also am a senior fellow at the Socktail Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. The Bill of Rights is silent on privacy. It doesn't mention the right to privacy. Um, But the Supreme Court has noted that a number of the rights that are explicit, such as the right against unreasonable search and seizure, are based on the fundamental principle that people should be able to have some sort of zone, if you will, in which the government can't intrude, right? The, so the, the right to privacy has actually uh, been articulated by the court, particularly in cases involving sexuality and reproductive rights, um, so that the, the court, uh, in one of the more recent cases, struck down state laws uh, prohibiting Uh, denying licenses uh, for same-sex couples to marry, for instance, on the ground that this violated uh, the right to privacy in that forming intimate relationships is uh, an important part of that private zone in which uh, the, um, the government shouldn't be able to intrude. Similarly, many years ago, the, the court struck down state laws prohibiting the availability of birth control, right? Um, and the right to privacy is what the court has used also in its recognition of a qualified right to uh, obtain an abortion uh, as well. Um, some have suggested that uh, that the Ninth Amendment might be a basis for a right to privacy since the Ninth Amendment says that just because certain rights are explicitly enumerated in the Constitution doesn't mean that those exhaust all the rights that people have. And some have suggested that privacy could be one of those rights uh, as well. But yes, uh, we, we think of it, if you think of it kind of in spatial terms, You know, there are sort of concentric circles as we move out from, you know, our individual self to relationships with others to moving out in public and so forth. The right against unreasonable search and seizures says there is a core circle there among those in which the government should not be able to intrude unless it's got, you know, an indication that you're engaged in some kind of illegal activity.
0: We understand no explicit clause guarantees privacy, but the right to privacy is critical to understanding the Fourth Amendment. It is the bedrock that defines search and seizure. Its implicit presence, while not specifically articulated, serves as the first check against unreasonable search and seizure. But times are changing. In the age of email, text, and Zoom calls, how are we to understand our rights to privacy in
1: the digital age? Well, so the the Fourth Amendment really is the governing constitutional principle for the government's ability to force the disclosure of uh, information, both electronic and otherwise. Um, th- there's a really quickly developing body of case law as to what is protected by the fourth amendment so uh what the supreme court for um nearly half a century has held is that for example for the government to wiretap phone calls uh to get the contents of someone's communications with someone they need a warrant supported by probable cause Uh, but then about a decade later in a case that actually came out of Maryland, the Supreme Court said that uh, just to get a pen register, which is basically a device that records the phone numbers that have been dialed by a particular phone number, that actually does not require a a warrant um, because of something known as the third party doctrine, which means that if third parties other than the parties to the communications have access to the information, then you've effectively, Surrendered any Fourth Amendment claims. Now um, that's gotten tricky in the electronic age because we have things like email, uh, which, when you send an email, your email provider technically does have access to it. Uh, But and this this actually hasn't gone to the Supreme Court, but what the lower courts have generally held for the past decade. Is that email is protected by the Fourth Amendment because it's still the content of your communications? Uh, The most notable ruling from the Supreme Court came in 2018 in a case called Carpenter, and in that case, the government had um, gotten had 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 a suspect in a series of armed robberies. And uh, the, way, the way they were able to actually tie him to those was they were able to get from his cell phone companies uh, all of the cell towers that his cell phone pinged over more than 120 days, and that was able to match him to the locations of the robberies. And they did that without a warrant. And what the Supreme Court said is this is actually Fourth amendment violation, because even though this is third party information... It's such a highly intimate set of data because it's effectively mapping you for more than 120 days, and the Supreme Court said you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that data. So it's really an exciting area of the law that is very quickly developing, Um, but it's hard to really predict with new technologies how the courts are going to rule in advance because it's really a case-by-case basis. Professor
0: Kossoff, can you help us understand what the future of privacy looks like and what its impact
1: will be on the Fourth Amendment? The most interesting application of new technology to the Constitution is really in the Fourth Amendment space. And that's because the courts are really struggling with applying rules that were created in the analog era to the internet so and to new technologies in general so um before the internet there was a fairly clear line of uh only protecting uh information that was not accessible to outside parties and things like the contents of a phone conversation Uh, but that gets a lot trickier when you're dealing with things like cell site information when you're dealing with uh information about genetics, for example, which you may have provided to a third party. Um, th- their, technology has really increased the capacity for information to really tell our most intimate details. And the the courts are really struggling to figure out how do I apply these principles that date back to a constitutional amendment that uh, really did not anticipate so much of our personal lives being accessible by the government. And uh, it, it's really been interesting to see judges try to struggle with this, and they, they don't always reach the same conclusion. But uh, I, I think there have been a lot of thoughtful approaches to figure out how do you strike the balance between individuals' need for privacy And the government's need to carry out criminal investigations.
0: Professor Kossif and Professor Regan helped us understand the basis of the right to privacy and its pivotal role as the bedrock guiding the Fourth Amendment. The foundation of privacy, both in 1791 and today in the digital age, revolves around the premise that you, as a citizen, possess a reasonable expectation to privacy in your home your possessions, and your communication with others. But what happens when a government actor suspects you have committed a crime or an offense? When do you lose that privacy? In other words, when does a search by a government actor become reasonable and, as a result, legal and lawful? We turn to
2: Professor Regan to discuss the concept of probable cause. Well, probable cause is really the crucial concept in the Fourth Amendment. The probable cause requirement says that you've got to go to a magistrate, a judge, right, and demonstrate that you have probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed, uh, is being committed, or will be committed in the near future. And that you need to search particular premises uh, for evidence relevant to that crime. Right? And so the Fourth Amendment itself, for instance, when it talks about probable cause, it says, going back to the concern about the general warrants, says particularly de- describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So... The general presumption, the general approach in conducting a search or a seizure is that you need probable cause. And when you get it, you can only search the particular area and seize the specific items, generally speaking, that are called for in the warrant. Uh, You can search outside the scope of the warrant only in very limited um, circumstances. And then there are a few exceptions to probable cause when a search would be what's required uh, to be what's known as being reasonable. But probable cause really, again, going back to the concern about the general warrants, just requires much more specificity on the part of the government in terms of what it's looking for and why. It's not an open-ended writ to search anywhere you want for whatever you want.
0: The concept of acquiring a legal search warrant is fundamental to our privacy as citizens and ensures the government must prove in a court of law that the right to conduct a search must be reasonable, specific, and based off the likely probability that a crime has been committed. What if there is no time to acquire a warrant? What happens when a police officer conducts a legal traffic stop, but suspects another
2: crime has been committed after talking to the driver? A police officer can approach someone in an automobile or can stop an automobile if they've got um, what's called reasonable suspicion that someone may be engaged in a uh, basically a traffic violation, right? So it's got to be related to something the officer can observe. And uh, that has to be the basis for stopping someone. This can also occur on the street. Uh, Again, uh, the notion is that in the exigencies of the moment, there may not be time to get a warrant. And so if you've got reasonable suspicion, not just a hunch, but you're able to articulate after the fact a basis for your suspicion, then you're able to stop someone and question someone, right? But going further and let's say searching that person or searching the car requires that they've got a uh, probable cause to believe that, for instance, in the car, there is contraband. Um, and so the court has provided a little bit of latitude to officers when they're encountering people on the street or people in automobiles so that they don't need probable cause, don't have to get a warrant, but they do have to have some basis for, first of all, stopping someone, questioning them. And then if they've got further, again, reasonable suspicion, they may be able to search that person, frisk him or her, or search the vehicle. But in any other instance where the police have time ahead of time to demonstrate probable cause, they've got to get a warrant uh, from a judge. Well, an officer could search a glove compartment after stopping someone for uh, a traffic violation, If they have reason to believe there's contraband in there, illegal drugs, for instance, or if they have reason to believe that there may be a gun uh, in there, for instance, and they're not sure if that person has uh, a lawful license uh, to carry the gun, um, so that uh, an officer can search those immediate surroundings uh, for weapons or other items that might harm the officer. So that is a matter of officer safety uh, right, to some extent. But again, it's got to be closely, uh, closely tied to that. If the officer opens up, let's say, a glove compartment based on reasonable suspicion uh, there and finds not a gun, but let's say illegal drugs, right? Well, if the, uh, that officer did have a reasonable basis for searching the glove compartment, what he or she finds there could be used as admissible evidence against the person for let's say uh, a, a drug charge. Uh, now, if let's say the officer uh, decides to search the trunk, but really doesn't have any sort of basis for doing that and then finds something that's let's say uh, illegal contraband of some sort, <clears throat> the Supreme Court has held that in uh, some circumstances fewer than used to be the case that that is inadmissible uh, at trial against someone, right? Because the search was conducted uh, unlawfully. The court in recent years has moved uh, to limit that to some extent, that so-called fruit of the poisonous tree, right? But there is still that principle that says that it's meant basically to try to create a disincentive for officers to begin to roam around and search what they want. Again, the concern going back to the general warrant. You know, you've got to have some reasonable basis for searching a specific area. Professor Regan's answer is critical to
0: understand, even without a warrant, a government actor can legally conduct a search if an offense is in plain view. If an individual is stopped for blowing a red light, But illegal drugs are an open view, that evidence can and will be used in the court of law. But it is also critical to understand Professor Regan's reference to the fruit of the poisonous tree. If a search is found to be unreasonable and unlawful, the exclusionary rule dictates that any evidence stemming from that unreasonable or illegal search cannot be used against you or admissible in court. The fruit The discovery of a genuine illegal activity cannot be used if the search is unlawful or poisonous. discussed the right to privacy and how it shapes the Fourth Amendment, the difference between an unreasonable and reasonable search and the all-important warrant and the effect of probable cause or lack thereof on admissibility. We now turn to the third and final portion of the Fourth Amendment, the search itself. Professor Regan, can you describe the historical context behind search
2: and seizure? Well, the historical context of search and seizure is actually fairly uh, identifiable, fairly specific. There was what was known as a general warrant in England. And these allowed government agents to search wherever they wanted, uh, whomever they wished, and did not specify particular places or particular items that they were looking for. Uh, And a general warrant didn't expire until the monarch's death, which meant it could remain in effect uh, for years. The British government used general warrants quite extensively in colonial America as they were searching for violations of customs laws, tax laws, uh, and the like. And this was a significant source of resentment toward the British Crown. And in fact, in one Supreme Court decision, Justice Brennan wrote, the evil of the general warrant is often regarded as the single immediate cause of the American Revolution. So the colonists, once the war was over and they began thinking about drafting a constitution, wanted to eliminate this sort of practice and hold the government to much more specific standards when it sought to engage in search and seizure.
0: Colonel Chris Shaw describes for us how the actual seizure may play out, both for civilians and members of the armed forces.
3: Both in the civilian world and in the military world, uh, individuals have Fourth Amendment rights. The Fourth Amendment rights in the civilian world and in the military world change uh, based off of context, and the law is always changing on this. Uh, What this means is that. Uh, individuals do have privacy interests in their base housing, they have privacy interests in their government emails, they have privacy interests um, in their barracks. Those interests um, are greater in your on-base housing than in the barracks, uh, are greater um, in your um, your backpack than in your individual private backpack than a government issued backpack. So what, what that means is that the way the government deals with that is that oftentimes uh, before we go into your emails, before we go into your house, uh, before we do any of those, any of those things, we're gonna ask permission. And if you grant permission, or if your roommate grants permission, then we get permission to look at those things. Um, If we don't get permission, then uh, the commanders or the persons on the scene will usually freeze the scene, which means that nobody can go in, nobody can go out, uh, so that we have control over the scene. And then we will seek a search authorization from the commander uh, that controls that portion of the base. The commander then goes through a fourth uh, amendment analysis with the help of a lawyer uh, to grant a search uh, based off of actually what you're looking for. So if one is looking for look, little packets of cocaine, uh, one can look through one's drawers. If they have the search authorization, one can look through one's socks. Um, one can really uh, go all through an area of a room. If one is looking for stolen laptop computers, they can only look in areas where a stolen laptop computer would fit. So really in conclusion, um, whether you're in the military or, in, or you're in civilian life, you do have uh, privacy interests. Those privacy interests are protected uh, by the Fourth Amendment. And normally when commanders want to search for something they're gonna ask, uh, For your consent, if they don't have your consent, they will then freeze the scene so that nobody can uh, modify that scene, take something out, put something in. Then they will seek um, a a search authorization from the commander that owns that portion of the base. Uh, And usually that authorization will be very specific uh, for what you're looking for.
0: We understand the limitations of search and seizure for government actors against citizens, but let's now turn specifically to the UCMJ and how it intersects with the Fourth Amendment. Lieutenant Commander Jarzik, how does the Fourth Amendment apply to service members, and how can we understand the difference between search and inspection?
4: When we're talking about a search, uh, we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, right, which is protecting all of us from unreasonable searches and seizures. It doesn't mean that we are free from the government ever looking at our stuff, right? But we are free from unreasonable searches and seizures. To decide though, whether we're even in fourth amendment land in the first place, we have to know if what the thing the government did or wants to do even counts as a search. And that requires three things, a government actor, and so like we talked about a little bit earlier, that's even Chief Schmuckatelli looking in your barracks room, right? Any Anyone wearing the uniform who's doing it by virtue of their duties, even if it's MA3, as you come through the gate driving your car, that's a government actor. They have to be looking in a place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And I know it does not feel like it in Bancroft Hall, but yes, you do have some expectation of privacy in that building. It's not quite the same as my expectation of privacy here in my off-base house in Edgewater, but you do have one. And the last requirement is that they are looking for evidence of misconduct. And that is the key difference between a search, which is going to trigger the Fourth Amendment and, you know, search authorization, warrant concerns, and an inspection. Because an inspection is a government actor, you know, it's Chief Schmuckatelli, looking in a place where you have at least some expectation of privacy. Maybe it's your uh, footlocker in your barrack space. Maybe it's the trunk of your car as you come through the gate that you have some expectation of privacy there but they are not looking for specific evidence of misconduct when they're doing that inspection in the first place what they're looking for is you know sort of the general health welfare well-being of you as service members right making sure that we don't have a huge roach problem because midshipman Schmeckatelli down the hall can't keep his room clean those are the sorts of describing factors that make us do inspections. Other things I've seen is like, hey, we're going to do an inspection because these kids keep plugging in hot plates and we're worried about a fire. It's a legitimate reason to do an inspection. And because I don't have that third requirement for a search, it means it's not a search. The Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. And if I happen to find evidence of criminal misconduct while I'm doing that inspection, well, it's game on then. And I get to use that as evidence against you. It sometimes gets problematic, though. What we see sometimes, particularly in the fleet, is what I call, and I'm using air quotes here, but an inspection, right? So I think uh, Seaman Timmy is up to no good. And I have a little bit of evidence that tells me that, but I don't have enough to, like, go get a warrant. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go do an inspection and I'm going to look in his barracks room and sure enough, I find the drugs or whatever it may be. I cannot use inspection as a a ruse or a guise to conduct an, an impermissible search. And so what the courts are going to look at when you have that challenge, the government saying this was just a plain old inspection and you seeming to me on trial are saying, no, it wasn't. This was a search what the courts are gonna look at is, one, are they targeting any particular individual? If they are, it becomes problematic. Are they subjecting any person or persons to more intrusion than others? That's also problematic. And three, is the inspection unscheduled and coming after a recent report of misconduct? These three things are what we call factors in military or in law. And what it means is, if you have two of those, it's going to be problematic. If you have three, it's going to be really problematic. The court is going to weigh hey, was this more like an inspection or was this more like a search? If it was more like a search, well, then you better have gotten search authorization too. Otherwise, what you found is not going to be admissible. In the words of, Justice Antonin Scalia, a sniff is not a search, right? So if I, if I smell the weed, I have not conducted a search. And by the way, if I had the right to be walking in your way, technically, we can call that like in plain sniff or in plain view. So there's nothing wrong with me having smelled that. So what I can do is try to follow that smell down and isolate it to like one, maybe two rooms. And at that point, right, you're going to kind of freeze the scene. You're going to say, hey, no one come in or out of these spaces. And then I'm going to go to the authority who has the ability to issue the military version of a warrant, which is a search authorization. And generally that's the CO with the authority over the person or place to be searched, as long as I had the right to be where I was, then it it falls under the plain view doctrine. And I had the right to be there. Like maybe I uh, am barracks patrol and I rove the barracks every 30 minutes or so throughout the evening. That's my job. And as I do, I look in one of the rooms and I see Seaman Timmy uh, hitting a joint. Sorry, Seaman Timmy, you were in plain view and you're in trouble. Well, let's say, let's let maybe make this a little bit more delineated. Seaman so Timmy and his girlfriend are walking out on the yard, and Seaman Timmy has weed in his pocket, and he sees the MAs coming towards him, and he hands it to his girlfriend, and she puts it in her purse. And they come up, and they don't have any right whatsoever to search her bag, but they do. They violated Timmy's girlfriend's rights by searching her bag, but the weed they found was Timmy's, and so they try to take Timmy to court martial because it wasn't Timmy's rights that were violated they can use the weed against Timmy. But if it was in his pocket, right, and they made him turn out his pockets impermissibly, that was a search, his rights were violated, and we're not gonna be able to use the weed against him. I think mean, this is a conversation, uh, because I teach the first days, about choosing your roommates wisely, right? Choose your friends carefully.
0: Choose your roommates wisely, Wise Counsel. Remember, your roommate can turn an ordinary inspection into a full-blown search. The Constitution through the Fourth Amendment protects people from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government, but that is not a guarantee against searches and seizures. Only those that are deemed unreasonable under the law. Stay tuned. The Fifth Amendment is next. For listening to the bill of rights podcast from the stockdale center at the united states naval academy this is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the u.s constitution the bill of rights and how the uniform code of military justice relates to each other tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms criminal procedure courts trials and enumerated rights among other things You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. Make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aidan Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. We'd also like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by Law & Order by Mike Post from the TV show Law & Order. Dragnet Instrumental Theme by Walter Schumann from the TV show Dragnet. Hawaii 5 Theme by Morton Stevens from the TV show Hawaii 5 And Beverly Hills Cop by Harold Faltemeyer From the movie, Beverly Hills Cop. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did.